children and salvation. Last week I preached on Luke 18, 15 through 17. And uh, some questions probably came up in your minds. Hopefully some were answered. But further questions may have come up, especially if you're a parent and, or have been a parent. Most of you have been a parent, are a parent, will be a parent, or have been a child at some time. That pretty much covers everyone in the room. So this is a topic I think that you probably have thought of and had questions about. Some of you asked me questions after last week's sermon. I also had further uh, questions that I wanted to attempt to look into Scripture with you and, and try to answer those. So what has started as a, a one-time expository sermon now is turning into a little mini-series on uh, children and salvation. Uh, today, last week, we looked at children and the kingdom of God. And Lord willing, next week, we'll finally, hopefully, get into children and baptism. All, of course, topics that uh, we need to look at eventually. So what better time than now, since Jesus opened it up for us here in this passage, to get into that subject. Let me read to you Luke 18, 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him, so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking him, rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So last week I walked you through that text. We considered the text that I just read, and and I made the case from the Bible that young children who died went to heaven by the grace of God alone. And I made that case because in the middle here, Jesus says, permit the children to come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This means that because of all the the miscarriages that have happened throughout human history, all of the abortions and all of the deaths happening in early childhood, it would be billions and billions of children in the kingdom someday. This is why I believe Jesus said that. The kingdom of God belongs. It's made up of. It's populated by such as these. Not those exact children, but children like them all over throughout history. Indeed, this belief that all children who die in infancy and and, and the mentally disabled are therefore shown to be elect and saved by God, that, that concept, that doctrine has been held by Reformed believers since at least the time of the Reformation. Uh, if, if you want to hear more on that specific subject, I recommend you go back and listen online to last week's sermon. And since it's going to be a, sort of a mini-series on children, if you missed it, I, I recommend you start there. But indeed, the, this belief has been something held, I think, biblically by the apostles, uh, by the uh, Christians for a couple of hundred years. And I think it got mixed up with Infant baptism, and especially the idea that infant baptism saves a child. Now the doctrine got forgotten here, this doctrine of babies who die in infancy going to heaven, because you had something that is being done to the child to cause their salvation. A baptism. And then I think the reformers brought it back. And of course, today, there's much confusion on this subject. The late R.C. Sproul even wrote that infants who die are given a special dispensation of the grace of God. It's not by their innocence, but by God's grace that they are received into heaven. So it all comes down to God's grace. That was really the point of 
last week's sermon, and Jesus uses that, that analogy. He says, uh, because children will populate the kingdom, you want to be like a child. You want to, to be saved by God's grace alone, not by your works. Children can't work their way into heaven. Little babies can't work their way into heaven. Infants who die in the womb can't work their way into heaven. They're saved by God's grace, and we must be saved similarly as well. So today, I want to look at the parents' role now in their children's salvation. Of course, this applies, as I said, to everyone here. You are either a child at one time, uh, will be a parent, are a parent, have been a parent, maybe you're a grandparent. It's important to ask ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about this? Because not all children die in infancy. And, and what then, if they live, which we hope that they do, and we pray that they do, how should we go about evangelizing them? How should we go about teaching them the gospel? How should we go about being godly parents or grandparents? So I want to look and see how, how we should be focused in regards to our children coming to sure faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at that under three subheadings, three things that I think the Bible uh, commands us to do as parents. First of all, parents must not rely upon the age of accountability. And I put that sort of in scare quotes there, the age of accountability. Uh, We have to discuss this topic really before we can dig in and talk about evangelism because it's often thrown out there, this age of accountability. Some teach that it's as old as 20, that everyone under 20 is, is sort of automatically considered, the worst version would be everyone under 20 is automatically considered a Christian until they show themselves not to be. And then they have to profess faith after 20. Some would knock it down to 13 because uh, Jesus uh, went to the temple at age 12. And Jews often said that's when a young man was held accountable under the Ten Commandments. And so they had the later in tradition called the Bar Mitzvah. Of course, the problem with that, age 20 is, is way too old. I think most of us can agree even if we held to some age specifically, that's too old because we're all willfully sinning, committing acts against God at that time. Even 13, bar mitzvah was ha- happening after biblical times. Now we can't use Jesus as an example of the age of responsibility or accountability. Why? Because he never sinned. He never had sin nature. He never wanted to sin, never desired to sin. That's not a great example to build theology upon. Well, then what do we make of this doctrine? This doctrine that either children are automatically saved at that age, or some people would just say, look, they're not held responsible before God until a certain time in their life. Well, there's no verse in the Bible that says that. There's no teaching to indicate that in Scripture. That at a specific age things suddenly change for all children. That at a specific age, 13 or 15 or 20, that suddenly the condition of all children has now changed from one status before God to another. I think if you look at Scripture, you won't find a verse on that. I've searched, many have searched. There's not a verse on that. Yet, last week we did look at different Scriptures that said, Young children don't know the difference between their right and their left hand. They don't know the difference between good and bad. 
evil and righteousness. So, at least for infants, as I just said, there seems to be a teaching in Scripture, which I'll show you that there's a, a condition where God doesn't look at their sin actions because they're not willfully rebelling in their hearts towards Him. How can a baby willfully rebel against God? How can a fetus in the womb willfully commit an act of sin against God? That seems to be something we might refer to as a condition of responsibility. Let me show you that in Scripture. A few of these we looked at last week. I've got some new ones for you to look at as well. Last week we talked about infants who die in this state. But now let's look considering young children. Deuteronomy 139. Deuteronomy 1.39. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, you recall. God is saying that over a certain age, they're going to die in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 1.39, he says, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, so they're complaining, Oh Lord, our little ones are going to die in the desert. God says, No. Your sons, your little ones, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there. And I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. He's not talking about heaven that they're going to enter, but he is saying, at least in this context, that there is a a type of child that doesn't know the difference. They have no knowledge of good or evil. They're sort of in a state like Adam and Eve were before they ate the fruit. Now, of course, children still have a sin nature. He's not saying that here. We've got to make sure we're careful with our doctrines. But here it is saying that, They have no knowledge of good or evil. Who has no knowledge of good or evil? Young children, those who are mentally uh, disabled even later in life. Isaiah 7, 16. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land whose two kings you will dread will be forsaken. So it's part of the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Before this young Messiah grows up to the age which everybody recognizes a certain time in his life, He will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. There's some point where a believing child knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Before that age, they're saying, certain things will happen according to the prophecy. Jonah 4.11. Jonah 4.11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, God says to Jonah? Should I not have compassion? Should I not save them? Remember, Jonah didn't want to go. He complained the whole time. Then he was mad that God didn't destroy the city. And God says, should I not have compassion, mercy, grace on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Who doesn't know the difference between their right and left hand? That would be young children, children who have not grown to the age where they know right from left. They don't understand that. And then he says, as well as many animals. Still agreeing with what Frank taught this morning on animals being different from humanity. There is a comparison here. Animals don't understand anything, right? They're just programmed like Frank taught us to do what God has programmed them to do. Well, children at a young age are like animals in the sense that they don't know necessarily right from wrong. They do if you train them. They do if you teach them. But in their natural state, and their normal state, God is saying in His Word, they don't know the right from the left hand. Here's a new one that we didn't consider last week. Genesis 8.21. 
Go, go to that verse. Uh, it was mentioned as well in class this morning, but I want to point out something that we often overlook. Genesis 8.21. And what we're considering here is, is there a time in a young person's life, a young child, that God is not holding them specifically accountable for acts of sin? Because they don't know, they don't understand. 8.21. This is why God destroyed the earth with a flood. And now uh, Noah is, is making a sacrifice and making a covenant. God's making a covenant with Noah. And God says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Why? Why, why did he do it in the first place? Why did he destroy mankind? And why is this problem still going to continue, but God's promising he won't destroy the ground again like that? For the intent of man's heart is evil. Total depravity. We, we love that, 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 that teaching, not because we love total depravity, but because it's what drives us to need a Savior. It's what drives us to Christ. But what's the end of the verse say? For the intent of man's heart is evil from a certain time, from his youth. Now, often we read that and we think from his youth means from the time he's born or, or you know, a baby all the way up. But words have a specific meaning in Scripture, and this is a time marker for us. From youth. The word youth in Hebrew here is a word. It's used elsewhere for a young man who can take part in battle, a young man who can marry, a young man who has rebellion in his heart towards God, a young man, a young adult. From that time, from the time that a child grows up, he has evil in his heart continually. Babies are born with a sin nature, but do they have evil in their heart continually? We laugh that they do, but I don't think they're cursing God. I don't think they're actually yelling curses at Him, becoming atheists. Children aren't born atheistic. They're born knowing something of their Creator. From his youth, mankind is, is of course born with a sin nature, but at their age of youth, this, this text says, young adult, they began to act out in the mind on that nature and knowingly commit sinful rebellion against God. Now let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is an uh, interesting text. Another one that shows total depravity of mankind. Romans 1.18. Classic text on man's sinful heart, man's sinful desires. Remember, the Bible is written to adults, believing adults to understand the Scriptures. Yes, children can understand it, but it's not a theology text, including all that we need to know about children and how God saves young children and infants. Let's look, though, at Romans 1.18. Paul's making the case here, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God's wrath, we just read of an example of it in, in Revelation 15. Who's it against? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's why God is going to punish the world. That's why God is going to judge mankind. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Do you see that? God holds them accountable. Why? Because they knew something about God. He put it in them. For God made it evident to them. Verse 20. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that what ha- through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So no one can claim, I knew nothing of God, because God made sure that they knew it. And they do know it, it says. But we must ask, what if one is not able to comprehend that? What if a child or a disabled, handicapped, mentally uh, child or person is not able to know these things that God has made evident? What if a, a young person, very young child, doesn't understand the divine attributes, the eternal power? Those are things that Scripture teaches, special revelation here. Yes, they are in creation. Yes, God does put it in our hearts. But we don't understand it until we look at Scripture and study it. So a response to the truth of God is based on one's ability to comprehend. That's what he's saying in verse 19. They suppress it actively. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. They knew about these things and they actively chose not to worship God. This person then becomes personally accountable when they reach a point where they have the spiritual and mental facility to grasp the issues. That's why all who can understand the truth of God are without excuse. All tribes and peoples of the past who who can know right from wrong are without excuse because they've sinned against God by not worshiping Him, by not giving thanks to Him. But again, what if they're too young to understand or are mentally disabled? We don't have an age when that happens, that they, they suddenly gain this understanding. The Bible doesn't say the kid's got a stamp of protection on them until they're 13 and it suddenly goes off. But if we're going to hold that children are saved at some point in infancy, when does that stop? At what point does that stop? The Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but it hints at the fact that there is a time. You remember Jesus said, children come to me. And I made the case that the children go up to a certain age, 10, 11, 12. The word children means that age group. Babies, Luke says in, in 18, 15 of Luke. But then Jesus expands and says, let them come to me because the kingdom belongs to them. So there's this idea in scripture about knowledge and understanding and responsibility. But God doesn't give a definite age because children mature at different times. If you've ever had more than one child, you know this. Children mature at different times. There are children who can understand the gospel at six. There are children who can understand the gospel at ten. Some don't understand the gospel until a little bit later, eleven, twelve. I think for the most part, if they're in a Christian family, they're understanding at least the concept of sin and the gospel earlier than thirteen. But each child matures at a different time. Last night, we were having our family worship time. My five-year-old, Finley, was reading scripture, and he can't read yet, so I'm saying the psalm, the verse, and and he's repeating it. And I said, say law. He's supposed to say it back. You know, we're reading the verse. He says, say what? (laughs) Law? Say what? Law? No, say law. It took him a couple of minutes. We all had a good laugh. He's not understanding yet even what the scriptures mean, and we're trying to teach him. But there is the age where a child suddenly grasps what the teaching of the gospel is. The reformer John Calvin called this an age of discretion. He did not say there was a specific age in a person's life. But he said sometime between 7 and 14, he taught, a child's reasoning is awakened 
And a change occurs from his previous way of thinking. Again, if you've had children, you've seen this. There's a change that happens. They, they, they once thought a certain way, and now they can understand in a different way. Calvin said sometime between 7 and 13, roughly, child's reasoning is awakened. Even though Calvin baptized babies, he would not give communion to them until an individual gave a public account of his or her faith. So he called it an age of discretion. He said, until that time, Christ receives those who are not yet of age to know how much they need His grace. Abibir Warfield also held to an age when children became morally responsible. Not a specific age for all children, but some time in each individual's young childhood. So this logically flows from the belief that infants who die in salvation are saved. If infants, as I've said, uh, who die are saved, at what age does that no longer apply as they continue to grow? In Luke 18, 16, Jesus expanded it to say children, not just babies. So there must be a time when this no longer applies. We don't know. We leave it up to God. But this is to say that age, a specific age, is not something you can rely on. I'm going to take a break with my children and evangelizing them until at least they're 13. Hopefully none of you ever do that, but some rely upon that kind of thinking, right? I'll send them to youth group, I'll send them to Sunday school, I'll send them to church, but I'm not going to get too serious about it because they're covered. No, the doctrine doesn't teach that every baby ever born is elect. It's those who die that are elect and saved. In other words, they're not made elect by their death, but the teaching is that they're shown to be elect through their death at an early age. And I cited some different theologians and reformers who have held that view, but specifically uh, Scripture last week. But now that they've, that they've continued to grow, we want all of our children to, to grow up and, and become uh, healthy adults. We can't rely upon this mythological specific age. But at the same time, we've got to hold to what Scripture says, that there is some time frame that they haven't yet awakened to this understanding of sin and responsibility before God. So remember, your children mature at different rates. You cannot rely upon such a type of thinking to exempt you from what I'm about to cover and the remaining part of the sermon. So that was number two, really just to get it out of the way because sometimes people hold too much to that. It's sort of like election, right? The Bible teaches that God has elected people to salvation. Are we supposed to go and evangelize them all? How do we know who's elect then? We don't. We just evangelize them all. You can't count on your children being covered by something in God's sovereignty when your job as a parent is what I'm about to cover in number two. Parents must begin evangelizing their children at an early age. These two things are not in opposition. Yes, there's an age where I think God does not hold them responsible morally. Scriptures seem to point to that. Don't know what it is. But Here's what we're commanded to do. Begin evangelizing children at an early age. God in His goodness and, and His wisdom, He saves those young children. And He saves those infants who I just mentioned that die in the womb through His grace. But this is no way exempts us as parents, as grandparents, from evangelizing our children. There's no way. It's just like if we were just going to go look for people who had an E on their forehead. Like I said... No one has an E on their forehead to show their elect. We evangelize all. And we talk to our, all of our kids and our grandkids. 
about Christ, about the gospel. Now, before we talk about evangelizing children at an early age, let's make sure we do it rightly, biblically. You don't coerce a profession of faith from your children. Very easy to do. I was just talking to a brother before the service, and we were just saying, you know, whatever we tell our kids, they'll do it when we're there. But when we're not there, what happens? And when they grow up and we're not there because they're young adults, what happens? That shows a a true heart. So we cannot coerce a profession of faith from our children. Don't do it from your children. Don't send them to programs or do it yourself. You know, raise your hand if you love Jesus. You're saved. You raised your hand. Is that what the Bible says? I've been at real events. We, We joke about these things that are like they're myths, but I have been where adults are told, raise your hands if you love Jesus. Every eye closed, every head bowed, raise your hands. Got some hands back there. You guys just made a profession of faith. Get in line for baptism. Adults. I know it happens with children as well. Sinner's prayer may have some good elements, the thing called the sinner's prayer, but I would not recommend that you tell your children to pray that and that makes them automatically saved. It's not by some act that they do that saves them. It's by God's grace, by God changing their hearts. They will show it through faith and repentance. But some formulaic prayer is as a way of coercing children into thinking that they're saved and then growing up later and looking back on that. Just like parents shouldn't say, oh, age of accountability, I got nothing to do till they're 13. Children ought not to say, I said the sinner's prayer when I was six, now I can live like I want and say that I'm saved. Walking forward, uh, coming up, making even a profession as a child, a vacation Bible school, often done wrongly, has that kind of attitude, children who come forward or raise their hands. Now, can a child be saved and then do those things? Of course. And I can be saved and then raise my hand. Raising the hand is insignificant. It's the work that God has done in my heart. So children almost always will respond in whatever way their parents or some adult that they love or want to please ask them to. It's very easy to get our young children especially to respond in that way. But it's not true saving faith. It's not true saving faith. It's merely repeating words or having them repeat what we want them to say and not true saving faith. But the purpose of teaching your children is not to force them into believing something. My purpose here is not to force you guys into believing something. I want to make my case from Scripture. If it's an expository sermon, I want to open up the text and show you the teaching. If it's theological, like what we're doing today, I want to go to verses and make my case there. And I know that's going to take time to do. Well, it will take time with your children. It's not trying to force them quickly to go ahead and believe something and repeat something. But God does use parents. God does use parents as the means of a child's salvation. Don't ever think that you're insignificant. Oh, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Oh, we believe in the grace of God. I'm not going to force my child. I'll just sit back and see what happens. God uses parents, very often uses parents or some family member to bring about the means of salvation for a child hearing the gospel. Just a show of hands, you heard the gospel and were sometimes saved because of a family member introducing that concept to you. Raise your hand if it was a parent 
or a family member who shared the gospel with you originally. So it does happen. And I would say in godly families, see, some of us didn't grow up with godly parents and Christian parents, so we can't, we can't even say that, right? But if you grew up in a family that had some Christians, this is a, often a way that God uses to save people. Let's look at Ephesians 6.4. This is a main text really on how we should raise our children up. Teaching them the word. So you've got to proclaim, you've got to teach them about Christ. It all comes back to who he is and what he's done. Ephesians 6, 4. Section on parenting here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But, in opposition to that, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We could even say, you know what, fathers, don't force your children to believe something but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Discipline means training in biblical truth, the training in righteousness that God expects us to live out. That's discipline. The second word there, admonition. It's the biblical counsel on avoiding sinful conduct. It's the word often used, nuthoteo, for the biblical counseling movement. So you show them the, the right path, we might say here, and you show them, how to avoid the wrong path. And that's all done in the, in the context of being in the Lord. Now, if your children are saved, this is discipleship. Maybe that's a topic for a future sermon in this mini-series on children. But if your children are not saved, by showing them who Christ is, by showing them what the Bible expects of us, by showing them what sin can do and how God judges sin, We are bringing them up with that understanding. We are disciplining their mind to know the truth of Scripture. And God can use that to save children because that's where the gospel is and teaching them from the Scriptures. You've got to teach them what the Bible says about sin. You've got to teach them what the Bible says about mankind, about what God expects of us as His creatures. That means teaching them specific doctrines. You might not even know if your child is truly saved or not. You might wonder. They're at that point where it's possible, but you're not sure. They've said some things. It doesn't matter. You just keep teaching the Scriptures. Every week I preach in front of a mixed group. Some, many are saved. Some are not. And I preach the truth of Scriptures because here's where the work that God has put in front of us is. It's in the Scriptures. Proclaiming it, teaching it. That's how God changes people's hearts. It's not through a dream or a vision or somehow your children are going to wake up one day and automatically be saved. It comes through the teaching and the proclamation of the Word of God. We've got to teach them about the Christian faith. We've got to, we've got to teach them not some simplistic, watered-down version. Not, we don't want to oversimplify the gospel. I think that happens sometimes in families. We don't want to do that. It's a greater danger than giving too much detail. If you give a child too much detail, they just take in what they can take in. But if you oversimplify it, then they never get the meat, the content that they need to know of the gospel. It's the truth in God's word that saves. But the truth must be understood before someone can have faith. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Let's take a look at that again. Classic text on what God expected the fathers in Israel to do with their children. 
And it matches what we just looked at in Ephesians 6.4. It's just a different way of explaining it. They had the law of Moses. Moses had just begun teaching what they were commanded to do. He's going to go on doing that through the rest of Deuteronomy. And he has some specific instructions for fathers right in the middle of this. By the way, this this text here is called the the Shema. Verse 4 all the way through uh, verse 9 here is the Shema, what, what men would recite from their childhood up. And they would put it on little boxes on their hands and on their foreheads. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. These words which I'm commanding today shall be on your heart, it says. That's what you're to do as, a, as an adult, as a, as a parent. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you... And he goes on to say, when you're going about your daily life. Do you see how specific this is, though? What is the, what is the them that he's saying? You shall teach them. You shall teach the specific commands of God that Moses is giving the people. Is that detailed? Is that specific? God expected those fathers to get into the details. Now, will children understand every detail? No. But you keep going over it, and you keep going over it. Do, we, do, do, you, um, do you think that every sermon you catch every detail? Or every time you go to a Bible study? Or every time you read a book on the Christian faith? That's why sanctification takes time. Well, it's the same with children. They have to hear it sometimes throughout a period of time before God changes their heart and uses a specific text of Scripture. The commands of God often drive us to Christ because children are growing up. They're becoming aware of their sins. They know that God expects us to live a holy life, but they can't do it. And it's great when they come to you isn't it, and say, I just can't, Dad. I just, I just can't, Mom. I can't do what you're asking me because I'm not able to. You know what you do there? You drive them to Christ. That's why Paul said the law is a tutor. A tutor in that day would would sometimes beat the kid to get him to class so he could study with that tutor, right? He would go and get the rich uh, man's son and drag him to class just so he would learn the truth. And Paul said that the law is like that in the Old Testament. It drives us to Christ because we can't fulfill it on our own. That's what they're teaching them in Deuteronomy 6. That God is one. That's some theology of God. Theology proper. And the commands that God expects. And so on. Our children need to grasp these concepts. Good and evil. Sin and punishment. Repentance and faith. Children aren't born with the knowledge of repentance. They think it's just saying sorry. When you finally do teach it the first time. And it takes... How many times? I can't, I can't tell you how many times you've got to tell them the difference between just worldly sorrow and godly repentance. Godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians uh, 7 is a good passage to look at with your children on that. You've got to teach them about God's holiness and His wrath against sin. You've got to teach them about the deity of Christ and His atonement for sin. You've got to talk about the resurrection and the lordship of Christ. 
And don't feel overwhelmed. Don't think, our kids are never going to understand this at a young age, especially. You'd be surprised, how, first of all, how much they can understand. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how much they repeat to you later. But that's not up to you to determine how much they can and can't understand. God just says, teach them. And you might have to use a little bit more terminology that children understand, but don't water it down. You may have to explain terms. We all have to do that in the Christian life. You may have to be clear in your communication, but even as adults, you want me to be clear in my preaching and not confusing. You may have to do those things, but realize they've got to understand the core elements of the gospel. You can't remove sin and repentance and the holiness of God and just say, do you love Jesus? You've got to teach them some basic concepts of that. Spurgeon said that the things that are essential for salvation, the things that are essential for salvation are so extremely simple that no child needs to sit down and despair of understanding the things which make for his peace. Christ crucified is not a riddle of the sages, but a plain truth for plain people. True, it is meat for men, but it is also milk for babes. Sometimes if you lived as an unbeliever a while as an adult, it makes it very hard to understand these things because we've lived with sin and we, we fight against the truth of God's word. Even as Christians, sometimes we, we struggle with it. Not so much with kids. They didn't live through that. They don't have this long period of rejection. It might be a lot easier for them to understand these core truths than it is for some of us today. So believing parents must faithfully and thoroughly teach them the gospel with all gentleness. And then don't forget to diligently pray for your children, for your grandchildren. Diligently pray. Prayer is an important means by which God uses for salvation as well. Always remember that it's God who saves. He's the one who does it. You cannot save your child, but you can bring them to the Scriptures and to the one who can save with Jesus Christ our Lord. As a child grows, it is right and good to encourage them in their faith if they professed it and to live out that profession they have made in Christ as Lord and Savior. So, begin evangelizing early. How early? As early as possible. As early as possible. In our house, we have the babies in there as we're doing family discipleship. Sometimes, that's not easy to do. Right now, he's in the nursery. At home, he sits in one of our laps. As early as possible, let them start to hear, certainly by the time they're toddlers. Number three, and lastly, parents must look for the fruit of salvation after a profession of faith. You'll search hard in the New Testament to find any section of the Bible that says, you profess faith, now we're done. Let's wait for the Lord to return. In fact, most of the New Testament is what? How to live now that you're saved. Yeah, Jesus proclaims the Gospels. Uh, in the Gospels, he proclaims the Gospel in the Gospels. But most of the letters after the Gospels, and even most of Jesus' teaching, you could argue, is about how to live as a disciple of Christ. So as parents, we've got to help our children in this. Professing faith at a young age does not guarantee salvation. It doesn't. That's not a guarantee. It's not a rubber stamp that we can sort of stamp a card 
and get into a heaven free ticket, or get out of hell free ticket. It's not determined by simply words, but a change of heart. Regeneration. That beautiful doctrine where God comes in and changes a person's heart. And you know what? We see fruit from that, don't we? We see fruit coming out of that change of life. And that's what you need to look for as parents. Not so you can correct your child each time and make them question their salvation. But just in the background, you're observing and you're helping them and you're, you're discipling them really through this. What kind of fruit? Well, we'll look at that. We'll look at that. What kind of fruit? There are a few major things we want to consider. But the problem is we live in an age where children are told that they're believers from a young age based on something they did one time, and they should never, ever doubt that. You know what that's called? False assurance. That's false assurance. Parents do it. Churches do it. Society does it. Some, some people will even say, the fact that you would even examine your own heart is a, is a doubt from Satan. You need to repel that. Problem is, the Bible doesn't say that, does it? That's unbiblical. The Bible says, examine yourself. Paul says, he examines himself. So we must be careful not to say, you said something when you were five, you said something when you were seven, you therefore are a Christian the rest of your life, no matter what you do. Remember, children often will say what they think their parents want them to. And we're not judge and jury. We've got to just sit back and say, we trust your profession. Now we're going to help them live it out and we're going to look for fruit. You know, children make intellectual assent to the truth that's presented to them by parents and their church leaders. But not only do they aim to please, children are an example in Scripture of someone that's very back and forth very susceptible to different thoughts and emotions, very much tossed back and forth, as Ephesians 4 says, that as Christians, as adults, we're not to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So Jesus says we're to be like children and that we're saved by the grace of God alone. We're to be humble. Paul says we're not to be like children and to intellectual ability where you're just tossed back and forth, thrown around by every wind of doctrine. Children believe just about anything. He says again in 1 Corinthians 14, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Why? Because children don't always think like they should. They don't always reason properly. When I was a child, he says, I used to speak like a child. Think like a child. Reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. He's not saying children can't be saved. He's just saying as we grow in the faith, we ought not to be thinking like children do, being tossed back and forth, changing our minds, changing our thoughts, not staying true to our commitments. This is why so many children who went to church in their younger years grow up and claim to be unbelievers. You know how bad this is getting in our American culture? One study puts it as high as 70% of Christian students in college end up leaving their faith. They once claimed to be a Christian. They get to college within the first year. Some estimates put it as high as 70% leave the faith, reject the faith 
that they grew up with, that they went to church and learned about. It's not because a person lost their salvation, but it's they claimed to believe it and then later turned away. They were assured they were saved and didn't worry about it until they heard the atheist professor or they heard the first challenge towards their faith and then they rejected it. Or they found out the college party life is much better than living the Christian life and they reject that as well. Well, Jesus said that a profession of faith does not in and of itself show a genuine work of God in the heart. Matthew 7. Let's look at Matthew 7, 21. Jesus is very clear on this passage here. He, he says it's not enough, really, to just say you're in Him. He expects to see fruit. Not that fruit saves you, but fruit goes along with being saved. Matthew 7, 21, he's in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to close it out here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who proclaims that they're saved and proclaims that he's their Savior will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, he who who does it, my Father who's in heaven, that person is going to enter, he says, who does my Father's will. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, that we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. They want to get in. They're begging with them. We did these miracles in your name. We did all these great things in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They lived out lawlessness. They did not care what God said. They did not care what Christ commanded them to do. They claimed to follow him, but they lived in lawlessness. We've got to look for spiritual fruit in our children who profess to be Christians. John the Baptist said that you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now that you've repented, now that you've you've turned away from your sin and trusted in the Lord, produce fruit that keeps with that, that, that goes along with that. One more verse on this. Jesus said, I am divine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My Father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Was he just speaking to adult Christians here? Or also, does this apply to young children who are Christians? Yes, young children can be saved. And if they're saved, then they will produce fruit. It's not going to look exactly like an adult. They're not going to have all the understanding yet that an adult has, but they will produce fruit. Do they not have the same Holy Spirit that we do? I like what Justin Peters, a a guy that preaches and goes around often speaking of false teachers and how to avoid them, but on this subject he says, you know, we don't get the junior Holy Spirit when we're children and be saved, right? You You don't get the junior Holy Spirit. Everyone gets the Holy Spirit that's saved. And the Holy Spirit will produce fruit. So what do you look for, specifically, as parents? What do you look for after they profess faith? Well, we've got to look for an overall change of life. An overall change of life. It's going to be hard if they're younger. They haven't had a long period of sin in their life to contrast with. But there will be some change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, Child, adult, 
elderly person, younger person, anyone is in Christ. He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There's got to be a difference, even in a, in a small child. We also should look for the fruit of godly affections. Godly affections. Maybe you're a teenager here today, and uh, you don't want to look at this list and, and make sure that you're not doing it. In other words, you want to look at this and say, when I profess faith as a youngster, I'm doing these things. That's a good way to examine yourself, teens, not just for mom and dad to consider here. Godly affections are a devotion to Christ. Do not love the world, nor things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A child who has not been saved tends to want to drift towards the world as they grow older. They want to drift towards their friends that are maybe ungodly friends or, or, or movies or games that are enticing them to sin. And John says, no, do not love the world. Believers must be devoted to Christ. You remember Mary, the sister of Martha, how she sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to every word? That's a devotion to Christ. Another fruit, a love for the word. A love for the word. If you continue in my word, Jesus says, then you are truly disciples of mine. And my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. They've got to love the word. Now, mom and dad, they may not excel at your Bible study. Well, they need to have some desire to learn the word. Some desire. You've got to help them with that. This is where you look for the fruit and you help them with this. God, of course, working it out in their hearts. But you're there as their primary Bible teacher. You've got to know something, dad. Mom, you've got to know a little something about the Bible to teach them, of course. Love for the Word. Personal holiness. They've got to be about killing their sin. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. If you're saved, Paul says, then by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body. If you're five, your child's five, you're going to have a hard time identifying those evil sins. But they're going to be there. If this person's saved, they're going to be attacking those sins, and however a five-year-old would go about doing it. But show them as best you can from the scriptures on how to do that. A couple more. A love for others, especially Christians. Children ought to, if they're saved, teens if they're saved, adults if they're saved, all Christians ought to love other Christians. Those kids hate coming to church, and the older they get, the more they fight against you. That's a big red flag. You ought to love being around other Christians. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John says? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And the last one, an increasing discernment of truth and error. An increasing discernment of truth and error. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible has a lot to say about discernment. One verse that I just read there indicates that all believers should be moving from a place of more and more understanding of what God's will is and how to live it out. That includes your beliefs. That includes your actions. Renewing constantly. Not just a one-time renewal. I was saved. I got a new heart. Yes. 
Now let's see that continual renewal in the heart. Look for fruit. Look for fruit. It's not too much to ask. We, we can't be giving uh, you know, kids a blank check because they profess faith. But at the same time, you can't be legalistic. You can't be going around saying that they've got to live their faith just like mom and dad. Mom and dad have had many years as a Christian sometimes. Mom and dad know a lot more. Mom and dad got to be examples of how to live this out. So look for fruit, but also remember the role of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that changes the heart, not you as the parent. It's the Holy Spirit that gives assurance of salvation. You cannot give 100% certainty to your child that they are saved. You shouldn't make them doubt it unless they're living in outright sin. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit's the one who gives assurance of salvation. Romans eight sixteen. Parenting's a great privilege. It's an honor, it's a gift to be blessed with children, the Bible says. But with that blessing comes responsibility. Parents can't rely on others to save their children. They must diligently and lovingly present the gospel to their children. And then parents should rejoice when they see evidence of real salvation. We should rejoice. And especially when we see that children, they they know it, they understand it, they believe it, and they're manifesting genuine fruit of salvation. What a blessing it is to see your children walking in the faith. That's a true blessing. And and this is the task that, that God has given us, one of them, one of the many tasks that God has given us as parents. So then the question comes up, when then should our children be baptized? Well, I'll do like Frank said in class this morning. You'll have to come back next week for the topic, the sermon on that topic, and uh, hope to have that studied out and presented to you as well. Lord, we come to you trusting our children in your hands. They're yours. You, you gave them to us, Lord. You created them in their mother's womb. And Lord, they're yours, but you've given us a special task to, to guide them, to evangelize them, to lead them. We cannot rely somewhere else for that. It's our task, Lord. Please, we ask, Lord, that you would give us the love for our children so much so that we would want to see them say that we would pray for their salvation, that we would disciple them once they are saved. We love Jesus Christ. We want to make him known, especially to those children in our home. I pray that parents, grandparents, family members might encourage their children, and encourage one another to follow Christ all their days. In his name we pray, amen.